0: Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about health professionals, the stories of their practice, and their diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and on today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Hudson Garrett. Dr. Garrett has an extremely diverse background as he not only works as a paramedic, but also has a PhD in healthcare management and is an assistant professor of infectious disease at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. These diverse perspectives enable Dr. Garrett to understand medicine from not only a clinical viewpoint, but also a policy standpoint. He shares updates regarding COVID, including the issue of vaccine hesitancy that will arise in the next couple months. Dr. Garrett has an entrepreneurial spirit and shares his time as the CEO and founder of the Community Health Associates, as well as his nonprofit, Infection Prevention Institute. He discusses stories from his years working in EMS, and all around, Dr. Garrett shares a lot of other insight in healthcare. I hope you enjoy. Glad to have you here, Dr. Garrett. How are you doing today? I'm good, how about yourself? I'm doing fine. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. I know you're really, really busy, but I really appreciate you took the time out of your schedule to meet with us. Um, I just wanna talk to you first about your journey into medicine. I know you're a paramedic and you're in emergency medical services and you're doing a lot of other interesting stuff. So how did it begin and how did it kind of progress through your career?
1: Uh, I mean, I started when I was quite young with a fascination with first aid kits, to be honest. I um, always was interested in medicine as a child and uh, then in high school became a certified medical assistant. Um, worked throughout that time period um, and then uh, worked for a community college teaching EMS professionals for quite a period of time. I still do that to this day um, and then decided to go in and become a nurse practitioner um and get my doctorate and so i i really enjoy a diversity of different activities i don't like to be bored Um, and so this sort of pathway has afforded me that opportunity to teach to clinically you know work in the field um, but also to help advance policy which i think is an important
0: part of what we need to do in healthcare today right and I, i really am fascinated by the breadth of your experiences right you not only have the direct clinical patient care aspect of it but you also have that Broader, you know, healthcare um, administration aspect of it too, with with your PhD, um, and then again, you're working on policy as well. And it's really interesting to see, you know, all of that in one person. Because, like you said, medicine is is such an such a large field, and it's so important for, you know, all those different parts of it to be to come together. And I think in politics, especially, and um, you know, in in the field, you need to have people like yourself where. You know, you not only know the policy, but you've, you've actually been there to treat patients. And so um, how has it been translating those clinical experiences that you've had into um, working in policy? And I know you um, are one of the main members of the COVID-19 response team in, um, in Atlanta. So how has that whole process been?
1: Well, I mean, there's, there's so many things that on paper look great, but you can't execute them on an ambulance or you can't execute them in an emergency department um and you know luckily i have a very good relationship with the cdc um and it brought a couple of those matters to their attention and as always they're good partners and have made accommodations to try to either clarify or strengthen uh, certain language to make sure that we're keeping our healthcare care team safe because i think one of the things that has been at least for me particularly challenging is that this is a virus that's highly transmissible and unlike ebola where there was a very limited chance that you as an individual provider would be exposed to it. With COVID, you're exposed to it every day and you just don't know it. Um, and, and so it's, there's a lot of people walking around without symptoms. And so you know, part of the policy role has to be to make sure that what we say is, you know, needs to be done can actually be done um, in every single practice setting and can keep our providers safe. Um, and I think that's an important aspect. We don't really focus on policy a tremendous amount, especially in EMS as we need to. Um, but this is an important aspect of making sure that we have that right seat at the table. And that's why I really enjoy straddling sort of the EMS pre-hospital side of the fence as well as the hospital side. And I also uh, am a professor um, at an academic institution, and that gives me a different lens to look through that helps from an educational standpoint.
0: Right, and I know you you do a lot of work in infectious disease and like the prevention of transmission. Um, how has that, you know, that education that you've had really, I guess, come to the limelight, especially with COVID?
1: Well, you know, normally when I tell people I do an infectious disease uh, work, they, they run in the other direction. And now yeah. they're asking more and more questions. So suddenly there's this direct interest in, in my field. Um, and the same is true for our hospital-based colleagues that do infection prevention and control that have been there for 20 plus years, that have been unrecognized in many instances. And now suddenly there's an interest in in trying to stop the spread of these infections and i I hope that we use this as frankly a wake-up call to say this has got to be a hardwire process that we do every single time Um, but i I will say that i've seen some horrific infection control practices both in the pre-hospital and the hospital setting um, that need to be fixed and they need to be fixed yesterday Um, because if not we're going to have a very poor readiness for future pandemics or or infectious disease threats. And we know, you know, history tells us that we know we'll have another one. Um, Whether or not it will be a global pandemic or more of an epidemic, that, you know, remains to be seen. But we've got to fix some of these low hanging fruits, like our core practices, like hand hygiene and disinfection of surfaces, and appropriately wearing personal protective equipment.
0: Right, and it's really interesting to hear, like, um, I was talking to an emergency medicine physician um, a little while back, and they were talking about how It was, you know, sometimes in EMS, like way back in the day, it wasn't, people didn't even wear gloves all the time. And then now it's becoming, you know, the mask, the masks are becoming like required or they are required. And then in the future, maybe after COVID, they might, that might also become a standard part of PPE for some kind of, you know, that kind of treatment. And it's really interesting to see how that develops.
1: Well, I mean, even now when masks are required, I can go in 90% of hospitals and see people not wearing masks. Um, or they're pulling them down or they're down below their nose. And, you know, my favorite conversation these days is your nose is part of your respiratory system, which is connected to your lungs, which is where COVID lives. So, um, it, you know, we're, we're not doing ourselves any favors by not following our own recommendations. So, you know, what that new normal looks like in the future, I, I'm not sure. Do I personally think that we'll be wearing masks for years to come? I don't. Um, I think that that will certainly be part of our arsenal, but I'm very optimistic about the upcoming vaccine releases. Um, our next challenge is going to be to convince people to get the vaccines, and that really honestly starts with us as healthcare providers.
0: Right. And you're doing a lot right now, um, yourself personally, like you have helped a lot in, you know, spreading awareness about this um, this pandemic and, and information disseminating information about that. What are your, I guess, personal goals in trying, in the future of this pandemic of like, like what are you trying to, I guess, accomplish um, and bring to the table in, in these next, you know, in this next year?
1: I mean, I think that's a good question. You know, We've really shifted from our initial, oh my God, response to now we have a better idea of the transmissibility, the routes of transmission, how to stop it. We're in a much better position now, thankfully with personal protective equipment. Um, sort of our next big hurdle that's really going to kick off around sort of the Christmas first of the year timeframe is frankly the vaccine. Um, And there's going to be a lot of vaccine, what we refer to as hesitancy, where we know that one in three people are are not trusting of the vaccine process. They don't understand how a vaccine could have possibly been developed in this record amount of time. Um, And and that's uh, understandable, but unfortunate um, because there have been no steps skipped in the vaccine process they've only been accelerated and many done in parallel Um, and so when we think about how do we make sure our workforce is safe as healthcare providers it is the vaccine just like with the flu shot Um, and yet we have still a low compliance with the annual flu shot and we see a lot of employers that make that mandatory so really my focus for the next year is going to be a lot on overcoming some of those hesitancies making sure that we're looking at, um, frankly, some retrospective analysis of our bad practices um, and to tr- really sort of uh, operationalize like things like the burn rate calculator that CDC has published to help facilities be prepared for uh, PPE shortages. You know, there's a lot of, there's, there's no shortage of tools. Um, what there is is a shortage of execution and strategic thinking. And we've got to do a much better job of that. Um, And everybody's excuse is, well, I don't have the time. I I, I get that. Um, But sometimes you have to make the time um, in order to prepare for the future. Because what I think we would all agree to is that we can never go through what we've been through as a healthcare system and frankly, as a society with COVID-19.
0: Right. And it's really exciting to, I guess, on a positive note, see like how much of a wake up call this whole pandemic has really been. And, you know, if we can turn that into sort of like, getting prepared for the future and making sure we don't go into that again. Mm -hmm. Um, I also am curious to know, like with your um, initiatives with like, for example, the community health associates that you founded and are now the CEO of, as well as the um, infection prevention Institute that that Mm -hmm. is your nonprofit. um, What were your goals when you founded them and how have they kind of developed as your time with them has grown?
1: So I I really have an entrepreneurial heart. I like to do new things. I like to build new things. Um, I like to see people grow. I like to see success. Um, One of my biggest things that I love in healthcare is to have a connection with the patient, which, you know, unfortunately in emergency medicine, uh, you don't get. Um, In infectious diseases, you normally don't get. Um, and, And frankly, in EMS, you don't get. Um, and so I, I use this as sort of my conduit to build long-term relationships with, with clients that are more mostly healthcare providers. Um, I deal a lot also with public safety. So I, I partner a lot with our police departments, our fire departments, and EMS um, to deliver the life-saving education that they need in order to keep their communities safe. Um, but I, I try to do it in a unique way that is customized for what they need. You know, so for example, if you take a firefighter who is a paramedic and they work 24 hour shifts and they only have two days off and they work a second job, it's not really feasible to put them in a classroom for 16 hours to renew their pediatric advanced life support. And so we try to come up with good customized ways through blended learning and other techniques to make it reasonable and tangible for people to achieve their goals. So that's sort of the community health associate side of the house. And then on the nonprofit side of the house, a colleague of mine and I started this with a goal of making sort of open access Uh, free-range education related to infection prevention and control. Um, And so now we're engaging in a project actually with the CDC to bring frontline healthcare education um, to nurses and EMS providers and long-term care professionals on basic infection control. Um, Because, you know, like I said earlier, COVID-19 has taught us a lot clinically, but the difference in my mind between this sort of Uh, pandemic and anything we've gone through in the past is the financial implications. Never has healthcare been decimated. Um, Never has society been literally shut down like it has been um, with this. And so, you know, that that sort of works advantageously to the conversation because people will agree, you know, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, we don't need to shut down again because we can't afford to. Um, And so we've got to figure out ways that we can operate within a safe context without jeopardizing either healthcare providers or patients.
0: Right, and it's interesting, like you, you um, are using like, <clears throat> online platforms a lot with these kind of things. Is is that kind of what you're talking about with how you're going to do these, make, make these, I guess, um, you know, prevent people from having to sit in like 16 hour classes or, or things like that is, you know, adopt online platforms like that?
1: Yeah, and I, I think online is probably a loose term. It needs to be highly engaged. Um, Interactive experiences. And so when I think of a good example, like the American Heart Association has partnered with Doll as an example to create these simulations for basic life support and advanced cardiac life support and PALS um, that really are competency driven. So as you sort of succeed, it it accelerates your progress. Um, If you need additional remediation, it slows down your progress but it brings sort of custom scenarios that are based on real life events that you as either an EMS provider or nurse or a physician uh, would face. And, and I think that that's really gotta be the future of what we do, these sort of old days of when I went to school and they pop in a video okay. and the instructor would stand off to the side and you know those were god awful um, yeah. and they don't work. And, and yes, they were consistent. I mean, you can't say they weren't consistent. The videos did show the perfect you know, elements of CPR, but that didn't work when my patient was underneath the dining room table and I had to pull them out and they had a C-spine precaution. Um, So, you know, these are all things that we've got to do a better job. And I think if there's one thing that sort of jumps off the paper at me is a lack of critical thinking in healthcare. We have to do a better job of imparting these skills in our students as they come out. And that's a really hard thing to do. And it's a delicate topic because if you tell someone who is extremely book smart that they're not good critical thinkers, they become offended. And in reality, the best practitioners in any healthcare environment are those that are, have the ability to critically think and don't you know, rely strictly on the algorithm um, that's published. Um, and I, I think that that's a, a needed thing that we've got to teach students how to do a better job of mentally.
0: Yeah, and I completely agree with what you said, like with the, with the video aspect of it. Like I know, you know, whenever I do like HIPAA training for something, like it'll be like online modules, I, you know, watch a PowerPoint and then take a quiz on it. But, you know, I can go back to the PowerPoint to pick out things. And I, I really, really like what you said about the interactive. And I think that would be a really amazing thing where you have like actual, I guess, case studies of when these techniques would actually be applied. Because I feel like that's, like you said, ultimately how you learn.
1: It is. It, and learning is so customized. I mean, I start every class I teach with, what do you want to learn? Right. And people are always surprised. And they say, well, why are you asking that? I just need to get the card. And I said, if you only need to get the card, you're in the wrong class. Um, if you want to learn the material in order to save a patient, then you're in the right class. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there are absolutely those people that just sit in a class because they have to. And I hate those people. Um, because they don't, they don't get the experience that we're there to create, and and there are lots of instructors that will give carts. Um, that's just not something that I'm interested in. I think that we have an or you know a moral and an ethical obligation to give our absolute best to our patients, and that starts with having highly competent personnel that are responding to the same. Right.
0: And what what motivates you to do that? Right. What motivates you to teach all the students that you do, whether it be an EMS or infectious control or in, whatever, in the, the, the wide breadth of things that you do teach, what motivates you to keep doing that?
1: Um, the absolute massive opportunity for improvement that we have in healthcare. Um, every single day I'm terrified of what I see. And I realize that as I age naturally, just like everybody, that these people will be taking care of me and that terrifies me. Um, and so I have to do something now Um, You know, I I really enjoy educating. I'm actually a terrified public speaker, which people are always surprised by given the number of lectures I give each year. Um, But I I bring everything to the game. Um, I leave it all on the stage and and it's important to me to give my very best. And I expect people that are taking care of patients to give their very best. And I think this pandemic has caused us to have what I like to call the emotional um, resilience bank account deficit because we have made so many withdrawals through overtime and PPE usage and time away from our families um, and being held over after shift or just very sick patients that we've made very, very little deposits that bring that emotional bank account back to the positive. Um, and and I, what I'm very concerned about, you know, and, and I did mention this earlier, was you, know, you said, what are you gonna do in the next year? And, and part of that answer is certainly you know, vaccine hesitancy, vaccine education awareness, but honestly, I think the other piece has got to be, we've got to make sure we take care of our team. Um, Our teams are hurting, they're damaged, they're broken, they're tired, they're exhausted, Um, and we have not dealt with that. Um, And so those sort of uh, effects of, you know, healthcare PTSD are there. Um, They may be, you know, underlying, it's sort of like peeling the layers of the onion back, but they will rear their ugly heads if we don't deal with them and we need to start
0: dealing with them now. Right. And it's, it's weird to see like, you know, in their initial wave of the pandemic, you know, over the summer when it was very serious, we were, you know, hearing these stories from healthcare professionals of like how, how terrible like things are going. Mm -hmm. And then it feels like there's actually like a period of silence when, when actually cases are going up, when, you know, the reality is it's still happening. Like all those, those crises are still still, you know, happening, but we're not hearing from it as much. How, how do you think that, that aspect works in where, you know, we're, the, the same stuff that was happening over the summer is still happening, but I guess we're just not giving it as much attention.
1: So I would challenge that a little bit and say that we're not having the same level of crisis um, right. that we did. I can tell you that from firsthand experience. I mean, when this was really bad, I would go into the emergency department and there would be 15 patients in front of us, all with COVID waiting for rooms. Um, you know, you'd see multiple different rooms converted to isolation. You would see ICUs full of patients on ventilators proned upside down. We're not seeing that. Um, I, by no means am I saying that we're not seeing COVID patients. We absolutely are. The good news is that the sort of overall mortality of the virus has dropped substantially, which is good. Um, we're seeing less, you know, cases that require hospitalization, which is good. Um, and, I, and I always caution people on strictly looking at the number of cases that are positive. So if you look at the overall positivity rate, it's actually been fairly constant in the U.S., with a few weeks of exceptions where it would go up or down a percentage point, which is not substantial. Um, But I sort of look at a couple of factors. One is how many total number of cases are there, which honestly is on the very low end of the totem pole. Number two is how many of those people require hospitalization. Number three is um, how many of those people die, right? What's sort of that overall mortality rate associated with those patients? And the fourth one is, what are my available healthcare resources to care for those patients? So, and that's not just physical resources like ventilators and beds, it's equally properly trained personnel right, you have enough respiratory therapists or registered nurses that are critical care specific, you know, specific, those types of things. And there are places like Utah comes to mind where they are in crisis mode, where they have not enough ICU beds, Now they have enough supplies. So we're in a much better position. We have enough PPE. We certainly have an excess of ventilators. Um, you know, thanks to the administration, we've gotten a lot of the remdesivir and some of the other medications. And, um, you know, we're very thankful for that. Um, So it's a it's a different level of crisis. I think now we're seeing this spike in cases. That's alarming people. I expected it Um, Mm -hmm. because especially as we're doing more and more testing in the community, we're going to see more cases. What I don't freak out about is the total number of cases. I get very worried when I see a massive increase in hospitalizations. So like here in Georgia, where I live, you know, we've seen obviously a very proportional number of cases, just like the U.S. has seen. Um, our hospitalization rates have been fairly constant with a few ebbs and flows, um, but by no means are we overwhelmed, by no means are our resources exhausted. Um, our personnel are exhausted, but our physical resources are not.
0: Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see because like you said, when we look at the numbers, I think one of my concerns originally was you see like an increase in cases. And like you said, that can be highly like um, attributable to you know, the increased testing, Right. But then you don't see like the death rate you were seeing with that high level of cases as compared to to the summer. Is that is that kind of just because we're testing so much or are there like is it like, you know, the hospitals are better used to um, to treat those kind of cases and they they have the right protocol in place or what exactly or how exactly are those death rates lower than than. it's a
1: combination of things. I mean, when you look at viruses that last this long, they're not going to maintain normally the same level of mortality as they had when they first. So if you think about it in, in sort of terms of waves, the first wave was let's go attack the most vulnerable people, right? Our long-term care residents or immunocompromised persons. And it, it did that. And it did that very successfully. Um, and now it sort of came back as another wave to go after that next, you know, sort of round of people. But every time it does that, Um, especially when the host doesn't die, it loses a little bit of its potency. Um, And so we've certainly seen that. Uh, That being said, we've also seen highly effective treatments like remdesivir, convalescent plasma. Um, Certainly we're getting people um, off ventilators or not putting them on ventilators, which is very helpful. Uh, The initial thought when this all hit was put everybody on a ventilator, turn them upside down, let the fluid come back out and hopefully everything will be fine. And, And the data didn't support that. So now we're doing high flow cannula, CPAP, IPAP, all kinds of other interventions um, to try to keep these people out of the realm of invasive ventilation. Um, and, and so it's really all about data. Um, and people always are complaining to me. They're like, well, you now why do y'all change the regu- you know, the recommendations every single week? And I thought, "You know, aren't you interested in evidence-based practice? Evidence-based practice means evidence, right? So as we have more evidence, we change the practice. Um, And that may change every week. So yeah, I understand it's frustrating, but the majority of the CDC's core recommendations with a few exceptions have really not substantially changed. Um, You know, probably the biggest one that's caused a lot of issues here lately is the term of airborne transmission um, that was sort of uh, publicized out there. And and with a few, few exceptions, that's been one of the biggest ones that's come up.
0: Right, and I think it'd be interesting to talk about your experience in the pre-health um, or pre-hospital setting, um, as a paramedic, so you um, deal with patients. Um, you know, in, in in this kind of setting, how how often do you see, I guess, COVID cases when when you you know when you get phone calls um, asking for for the paramedics?
1: Um, you know, when this was bad, it could be in a twelve-hour shift. It could be half of our patients um, or higher. Um, yesterday it was one patient. Um, normally it's, it's one to two um, right now. Uh, it just depends. But again, that's spread out across, you know, about 30 different crews over the course of a day. Um, but we get, you know, my, my crew that I work with and my partner, we tend to get most of the COVID patients um, if we're available. So it, it really just depends. We also deal with some chronic COVID patients um, that are you know going back and forth between different types of facilities to receive specialized treatment So it's not just the acute care patients But it's also those that are on chronic O2 and things like that that we have to deal with also
0: Right. I'm curious to know more about those those chronic um, patients that you're talking about with COVID so um, Is it like they have symptoms and they kind of you know go away a little bit and they can go home and then they It kind of gets worse and they got to come back or, or how exactly are those chronic patients doing? Um, you know, it depends.
1: Everybody's a little bit different. I, I've seen patients that have had no chronic issues at all, and I've seen others that have had, you know, months, um, six plus months of chronic conditions. And the literature is just now starting to emerge from those types of patients. And there is a large proportion of patients that have, you know, what we would really consider permanent disability, um, whether it's the constant need for oxygen or, um, you know, uh, long-term taste or, of, uh, and smell issues. Um, patients that have sort of that mental fog and fatigue is another common one that we see. So I don't know if we've had enough time. I mean, it's only November to really fully appreciate what that looks like. But I think it's safe to say that the majority of patients do experience some type of um, lingering effects. Uh, A lot of times it's a cough um, or some acute shortness of breath. It really just depends on what else you've got going on. Because remember that COVID attacks the most vulnerable aspects of the body. So if you are already a COPD patient, then right. it's going to go say, hey, great, I'm going to go attack the lungs. Um, or if you're diabetic, it's going to attack the brittleness that you've been maintaining your diabetes. So you know, it really just depends on what the patient sort of already brought to the equation into the table up front.
0: Right. And this, this is really concerning to see. I mean, we've always known right the, that those pre existing conditions are like the most vulnerable COVID patients, right. um, and just kind of talking more broadly about your time as a paramedic, what are some cases, um, you know, we love, we love telling stories on the podcast, what are some cases that you know, you hold dear, dear to yourself or, or you find, you know, very important in your career over the years as a paramedic?
1: I mean, that could be anything, but as it relates to COVID, I think it's, it's the fact that families are separated from their loved ones, um and you know all too often um and this just happened a few weeks ago there was we pulled into the ambulance bay and i looked across into the er parking lot and i saw this very large group of people and my gut said that's that patient's family that we're going to get and so we went inside got the patient we were taking into a higher level of care and we came back out and i see all these people intently watching this patient and i knew it was their family um and the patient had been in the emergency department for a day and a half not seeing their family had not seen their family at all had not talked to them had no idea what was going on um, and the patient was most likely not going to survive Um, and and so you know the hospital did not make the accommodation to at least let some of the families in uh, family members in and there are safe ways to do that Um, and so we decided to make that accommodation to give them all masks allow them to come over um, at least you know, put their hand on their relative and let them know that they love them, let them know that they were there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's what you can't teach in school. Um, that's not something that's in a textbook. It's not something that an instructor can teach you. Um, it's simply a matter of just being a human being. And I think COVID has taught us so much about we can't lose that even though we're wearing all this PPE. Um, because patients can't see our smile, they can't see our frown, they can't see our emotions, they can't see anything about You know, all they're seeing is that. Um, And when we're taking care of COVID patients, we've got on full face shields and and hair nets and gowns and all this other stuff. And so little things like, you know, putting a picture of yourself with your name. Hi, my name's Hudson. So they know who you are um, and they can communicate with you. Um, it, It just makes a big difference because, you know, these are people underneath the patient gown that they're wearing. And, and I think that that's probably one of the biggest things that we've had to learn.
0: Right. And I think people, when they call 911 or, you know, they have to call emergency medical services, like that's the last thing they want to do and they're doing it because that's literally all that they can do. And, you know, now they're looking at people that, you know, like you said, they can't even see to, and they're putting their entire life in their hands. And how, how is that feeling for you? Like that feeling of like, you know, you are all that the patient has in, in terms of you know in that moment?
1: I mean, I would say it's an immense responsibility with very little, if any respect um, given by, by most people. Um, it's rare that EMS is ever told thank you. It's very rare that EMS is ever made aware of how the patient's final disposition is. It's very rare that EMS is ever um, allowed to sort of interact and see what happens at the hospital Um, And that's, again, one of the reasons why I like to be on both sides of the house. I like to make that bridge. And that's the reason I still practice in EMS. I mean, most people say, well, why would you practice in EMS with a doctor? Um, And I thought, well, why not? Like what makes me any different than anyone else? I think it only makes me better qualified to be on a truck. um, and, and, And hopefully also as a conduit to make sure we have better providers in the field. And frankly, we can have better respect in the hospitals. Um, and, and so I, I sort of use that always as a as a great opportunity to remind ourselves um, that you know we need to do better about interprofessional communication too.
0: Right, and you as a person are an example of like you know interprofessional. Um, you know you you do the paramedic side of it, and you have like you said the doctorate, which yeah. is really interesting. Like to to see that that kind of connect. What kind of things have you been able to do? I guess to address this issue of like this disconnect of, you know, different fields of, of medicine?
1: I mean, I take it one case at a time and I, I try to bring people to the realization that we're all part of one team for one patient and the patient deserves one thing, patient safety. Um, and that requires an adequate handoff and transition of information that's relative. Um, you know, just last night, it's, it's very common for me to have registered nurses with master's or bachelor's degrees not even be able to tell me basic information about patients Um, that's not acceptable just like it's not acceptable for an ems provider to roll into the emergency department and not be able to tell basic information about the patient or the interventions that they took now obviously if the patient's unconscious when we arrive and we can't determine that information that's different right but we have to do a better job of knowing what we're doing and sharing that information um, and I, I get that the stressors are, are, are massive, but we can't afford, you know, the, the difference in healthcare in my mind, especially in EMS and in emergency medicine, I think is that you can't afford to have a bad day. You know, if you have a bad day, patients could die. Um, it's very, very different than if you're on a med search for something like that, where the, the risk is much lower. But if I don't intubate that patient, or if I don't give that patient fluids, or if I don't give that patient nitroglycerin there is a a negative consequence that might be suffered by that patient that may be irreversible. Um, And and so that's a massive uh, responsibility um, that, you know, I I think in a lot of ways is daunting. And it it always sort of humbles you or should humble you to think you have that knowledge and that training and that power of recognition, but you also have that authority. Um, And I think that's honestly one of the things that's so different about EMS providers that especially ER nurses don't realize like, you know, when you're an ER nurse, yeah, you're, you're an integral part of the chain and you're a great resource. But the difference is you have every resource at your disposal. Um, you know, you press a button or you call somebody on your phone and a whole team shows up um, and you've got ultrasound and you've got x-ray and you've got labs and all this other stuff. And we don't have any of that in the pre-hospital setting for the most part. Um, and so I, I'm always amazed when ER nurses were like, well, you know, why didn't you get an IV? Well, because I was going 75 miles an hour, trying to get the patient here and they were fighting me and I was trying to restrain them and give them medication and get them here safely. Do you have any other questions? You know, right? So it's it's a little bit different than when they can restrain them a lot safer um, versus being in the back of a moving box um, where you have very limited capacity.
0: Right. And it's really interesting you say the responsibility aspect of it, right? You have the the fact where you're, you have this immense responsibility, but you don't have the recognition for it. You know, you, yeah. you are expected to do all these things, you know, because of course, it's your job, but it's always nice, I guess, you know, whether it be from a patient or by like, you know, the, whatever hospital or organization you're part of to get some kind of recognition, because at the end of the day, we're all human. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing about emergency medicine and, and the pre-hospital setting in general is that you, you have these like, priceless responsibilities, but you, you don't get the, I guess, recognition that you would normally expect from something so important in society.
1: You don't, you don't. And I mean, you know, I was joking with a good friend of mine that's actually a, an anesthetist. Um, and he said, and, and he was serious. He, and I, I was just shocked by the statement and he said, well, I don't even remember how the conversation came up, but we were talking about somebody with an asthma attack. And, and I, we were joking because, you know, of course, anesthesia is considered the intubation experts. And I said, yeah, you are. But I said, you intubate well in a hospital where the patient's on a stretcher and they're in a perfect position for you. You don't intubate with them sitting up or in a car with a C collar on or upside down or, or you know, all these other things. And we were joking. And he said something about, well, you know, an asthma attack. And I said, yeah, we would give out butyrol or Atriban or... Some of the other stuff we have, racemic epinephrine. And, and he sort of stared at me. And I said, why are you staring at me? And he said, well, I didn't know you had that on the ambulance. And I said, you must be kidding me. I said, so you think you call 911 and we put you in the back of the wagon and we just drive real fast to the hospital? Um, and this is somebody with a doctorate. And, and he said, well, I didn't honestly realize that all that stuff. And so I think there's a misconception, certainly with the public, but even with other people that we work with on a daily basis that EMS is, is nothing more than a glorified, you know, um, you know boo-boo bus. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, the stuff that we do is very much in line with what's done in most emergency departments. Um, the difference is we're not doctors and we're not doing it, you know, there's not a doctor telling us to do it right then. And so, you know, whereas our ER colleagues that are ER nurses, they have to go get an order. We already have the orders. It's up to our eyes and our recognition and our diagnostic skills to say, okay, this patient has attention to nemothorax, let's decompress it. Um, that's not done in, the, in an emergency department, it's done by the physician or the nurse practitioners or the PAs. So it's just a very different environment. You know, one's not better than the other, they're both complementary. Um, But I think we need to acknowledge these other skill sets. And that's why I think we see a lot of emergency departments that are hiring all the paramedics out of the field that they can because they know that the paramedics bring a very unique skill set to the emergency department.
0: Right, and I guess that kind of leans into this question, but what is something that you wish um, people knew about your field as, as a paramedic?
1: I mean, I I think I wish people had a better appreciation for the amount of training and skills that EMS providers go through. Um, I, I, on the other side of that, also wish EMS providers took the role more seriously. Um, There are many that, you know, when you come up to a scene and your shirt is hanging out and and it looks like you've never shaved or you've never brushed your hair um, or you don't smell good, You know, these are all things that are not acceptable. Um, And so there are a lot of things that are done in public safety that do not help our cause. Um, You will not see that for the most part in the emergency department, right? You will see people that are professionally dressed in scrubs, you know, or their t-shirts that are hospital issued. It's just a different environment. And so my, my always challenge to our field is if you want to be seen as a healthcare professional, you must act like a healthcare professional. You must treat yourself like a healthcare professional. Um, you know, don't be out in the ambulance space smoking um, and, and don't, don't be, you know, speaking in vulgar terms or unprofessional. Um, right? Even if it's just you and your partner, um, w- there's always somebody watching. And, and I, I know that that happens in every healthcare environment. So I'm not just isolating EMS, but there's a high bar for excellence in EMS because we are doing things on our own and it's a very mobile environment. That has a lot of autonomy. Um, and with that autonomy, I think comes a lot of responsibility. But we've got a better job to do of educating the public um, about what we do. Um, and, and I think that that starts with community education, um, you know, in giving people a better understanding of when you call 911, here are all the things that can happen.
0: Right. And I guess before we close out, um, I just want to ask you what are your goals in life right as you're you know you're doing all these things to you know better the people's understanding of of you know interprofessional communication and infectious mm-hmm. control how do you see your future in i guess integrating all of these things and and what is your kind of vision of what you want your impact to be
1: you know my thing, as cheesy as it sounds, is to have a world without healthcare associated infection, right? I can't control every single infection, but I can certainly control the ones that we give you in healthcare, right? You shouldn't come in for an elective knee procedure and leave with an MRSA infection. Like that's not acceptable. Um, we can control that when we put you on a ventilator that you should not get a ventilator associated pneumonia. Um, you know, we can control that you should not have dirty surgical instruments used on you and an in infectious disease. Um, And so that's really always been my area of focus. What I I would love to see is a high compliance with what CDC refers to as the core practices of infection prevention and control, things like hand washing, PPE usage, uh, proper vaccination, uh, those types of things. If we can get to that point, if I can help be a small part of that in my career, then I will feel very um, satisfied with that. Because you know, if we were to just do the core practices, CDC estimates that between 80 and 90% of our infections that we see in healthcare would simply go away, right? And that's a very powerful statistic to think about. And none of the stuff I'm talking about is expensive. It's not time consuming, it's not hard. I can teach somebody who is a sixth grader to do this stuff. So I can certainly teach a licensed, educated healthcare professional to wash their hands, right? And it's all about accountability. Um, and only through that will we get to a place where patients are not fearful of their hospitalization, or they're not fearful of their interaction with us in healthcare. Um, and, and I'll sort of close with a quick summary um, of a, a story. So, when COVID all hit, we received a phone call from a hospice organization, and it's a very odd phone call. And they're asking all these questions about how we clean the trucks and things like that. And then they, I finally said that they they actually asked me to talk to this lady because the dispatcher was saying, I, I can't figure out why she's asking all these questions. And they knew with my background, I'd be able to answer them. And I asked the nurse, I said, is your concern about COVID? And she said, yes, sir. She said, we've got a patient that's very, very ill, that's on hospice, that's not going to survive much longer. And we just don't want to expose that person to COVID. Um, can you give us an ambulance that's not had COVID in it? And I'm, I'm sort of laughing in my head. And I'm thinking, no, because every one of our ambulances has had COVID. And she said, well, you know, can you find me an ambulance in the state of Georgia that's not had COVID? And I said, no, ma'am, I can't. I said, because every ambulance has either had confirmed COVID or suspected COVID in the ambulance. And so I walked her through what we did, um, uh, even offered to show her the process. And she was so blown away with that. She's like, okay, I feel much more comfortable with you than anyone else we've called. Can we have you as the crew? Um, And so sort of like a, a request. And so, you know, these are all things that, Normally would not happen, um, and I work for a private EMS agency, so it was a little bit different. But you know, sometimes we have to take the time to make our clients, right, our customers, and our patients feel uh, much more safe and at ease. Um, and COVID has made people feel very scared, and so I, I always try to do a good job of making people see that. And when they see me roll up with my full respirator on, and I'm always wearing safety glasses, yeah, I may look like Darth Vader, but they know that I'm taking it seriously, and they know that I'm protecting them. Um, and I make them wear a mask. Um, and, and so these are all basic things that we can do.
0: Right. And it's really, it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing to see like how the basics are the most important thing, right? Like we, totally. we learn all these like, you know, as your medical education goes on, you learn about like these really complex stuff. And I guess it seems like you kind of forget the, the most important stuff, like the basic stuff. And at the end of the day, that's what really comes back and bites you in the butt. I mean, you know, there's a reason it's called basic
1: life support, right? Because it is life support. And and even working a code, if I just do great CPR and great ventilations and and, and I get an AED attached, my outcome is probably just as good, if not better, than ACLS interventions, um, you know, if I get it started early. So we've always got to think about going back to the basics. And, and every EMS provider has always got to think about being a great, EMT first. Um, and I think that's really hard for advanced level providers to think about because people get offended. and They're like, "Well, I'm a paramedic. And I'm like, I don't care. You're still an EMT, right? You're, you're an EMT at your core and basic life support always supersedes advanced interventions, right? If I'm not doing chest compressions, it doesn't matter how perfect my IV is um, because I'm not able to circulate that medication. Um, And so I think we've got to be humble about that and remember that we've got to always get back to the basics.
0: Right. And thank you so much, Dr. Garrett, for all your insight. I really, really appreciate your time here today. Um, and, And I just want to thank you so much for coming out to the podcast.
1: Awesome. Thanks for the invitation.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitzvectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday.